0: What is crackalacking, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you without my fantabulous co host, Adam Farnell, and on my very own for a mailbag. How about that? We haven't done a mailbag in a while, so we wanted to get to your questions. We have a ton of them. Before we get started, though, just the usual housekeeping notes. Please, please, pretty please with sugar and whatever else you prefer on top. Great review. And subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done those things already. If this is your first time checking out Hardware Knox, please consider throwing us that permanent subscription wherever you get get your pods, rating and reviews, wherever you get them, Spotify, Apple, anywhere else that allows you to rate and review. That helps us out a ton as well in the charts. Also, please be sure to follow our YouTube channel. We are very close to 1K subscribers, so head over to YouTube.com, search Hardware Knocks. We will come up. You can check out our clips that are posted there. We're also on TikTok, IG, and Twitter, the links to which are in the podcast description. I do post original content on TikTok and IG, so there is a method to the madness over there. Join our Discord. We have good discussions in there still. Um, it's actually been a little slower to start the playoffs. So if, if any of the Discord members are listening and you guys ask a ton of questions every time, let's, let's ramp that up. I'm mostly around during games so we can chit-chat. New members are welcome. The link to that is in the podcast description as well. If you've done all of these things, we would ask that you please recommend us to someone that you know who likes basketball, some, a coworker, friend, family member, maybe a random person on the internet who you know likes basketball. If there are any shout-outs requests for podcasts, randomly on the internet. It's always fun when we appear in one of those threads or reply things about which basketball podcasts are the best. You don't even have to think we're the best. We're pleasantly not the worst is how I would call us. Um, That's all for me. The other note here is there are questions about the playoffs and Adam and I will be going a little bit deeper into the playoffs soon. I believe we'll be having a guest on next week to talk about maybe surprises or just takeaways. Uh, But we also recognize that you guys are getting that content of Elsewhere, a lot in droves, especially from the team-specific podcasts that do a great job covering these, these singular matchups or the singular uh, organizations themselves. And so we want to make sure we're putting at least some bigger picture evergreen content stu- stuff up throughout the postseason as well, which means that you will be seeing that um, from us. Whether you're, If you don't like that model, you can let us know. But that was just the thinking here is that we don't want to be putting out the analysis that other people are, are already doing. And so with that, we can cannonball into this podcast. And I think we probably have to start with the Suns. I'm recording this about an hour and a half after Suns Pelicans game two ended. To answer your question, yes, I am fucking delirious, but that doesn't matter. Um, Basically, the question here from, it's not basically, it's from uh, our Discord member, Newt. Is the best way for the Suns to win this series against the Pelicans to just throw out all the weird strategies to catch Willie Green off guard? Seems like they... Uh, always knew what the Suns were up to in the regular season. Willie Green, of course, hailing from the, the Suns themselves to for, before he was coached to the Pelicans, might have an inside track on what they are thinking. Uh, this is also just especially prescient because the Suns did lose game two after Devin Booker injured his right hamstring in the third quarter. That is not the same hamstring he injured in the middle of this past regular season. That cost him seven games, by the way. Uh, so we're still waiting as of this recording for an update on that. We don't know the severity of it. Uh, I was watching the, I forget his name, but I really watched quickly the clip of the doctor who posts um, immediate reactions to these injuries on YouTube. And he said, based on where they were massaging and how little Devin Booker was limping, uh, his initial prognostic, his initial prognosis from afar would be that hopefully it's sort of the meat and potatoes of the hamstring. And so the severity of it would actually not be that detrimental. Uh, The Suns really could have used Devin Booker. They were trailing at the time that he left, but things got worse after he left. He was really the only consistent shot maker for them in game two. Um, To this question's overarching point, should the Suns get weird? I don't know what weird looks like for the Suns, to be honest with you. Is it... When the Pelicans are going with those sort of Larry Nance Jr. at the five lineups, are you going to throw a Torrey Craig and as you, and Jay Crowder is your front court with Mikhail Bridges and then Devin Booker and Chris Paul, or just some other different combination where Torrey Craig or Jay Crowder is effectively your center. Uh, are you going to try and match their dual big lineups with McGee and Aiton? Um, I just don't know what getting weird for this team looks like because it's just so well-balanced and their best lineups make so much sense that I wouldn't, Deviate from them. We did see a little bit of Landry Shamit in Game Two um, because of Devin Booker leaving the game. I just don't know if downsizing really plays to their advantage. Again, I, I, when Larry Nance Jr. at the five, maybe. Um, and those lineups, you know, a couple of them, like the Larry Nance Jr. Trey Murphy combination with Brandon Ingram in this series, has fared pretty well. I'm just basing this completely off the eye test through the first two games, so that would be something to consider. You can't call dual bigs with DeAndre and Val McGee. It's just, you know, the the Jackson Hayes minutes with the starting lineup, they've played the Suns to a net neutral in this series so far. And so maybe that's concerning given how much more talented the the Suns starting lineup is supposed to be. Um, And Jackson Hayes had some really big moments on the glass, some big buckets, some big defensive plays in this one, but he still provides a weak point to me um, for the Suns when when they're on offense. I think what, uh, for the Pelicans, excuse me, on offense, I think what the Suns, really need to focus on here is i guess we know they're probably going to lose the rebounding battle but you can't lose then the transition battle as well and what the pelicans seem to do is even if they're not getting if they get an offensive rebound that's an extra possession that's time you can't get go back out and transition and get so that's just that that sucks if you're the pelicans but also even when they're not getting the offensive rebound like they're around the glass so much that they're just going to have bodies and hands able to contain the ball a little bit or slow down the sun's offense that they can't get in those transition or semi-transition opportunities as much as they're used to. It feels like, I don't know how you necessarily change that. Are you making more aggressive outlet passes maybe um, rather than trying to find a specific person to dribble it up the court, or, you know, if it's a CP three rebound dribble up the court himself. Um, But that, that could be one suggestion there for them to try their own transition defense though, is probably the larger concern. In game two specifically, they were outscored um, by second champ, chance points and fast break points combined. They lost that battle 31 to 18. And so to be a minus 13 in those, and then on top of it, you lost the three-point battle by a substantial margin this time because you had you know CP3, Cam Johnson, and Jay Crowder combined to go three of 17 from downtown in this game. Um, that is not great and you expect better, even though CP3's three-point percentage has been lower than normal this season, just um, just an FYI. That's not going to happen again. And so in most games, certainly against this Pelicans team that wasn't a good three-point shooting team in the in the regular season, you're not going to be a minus 12 from beyond the arc as well. 17 of 30, they shot from three, 56.7%. I know that they've done some really nice things with, um, we've seen Jose Alvarado, you can trust him off the catch, Herbert Jones, his steady point percentage, you have CJ and Brandon Ingram, both of whom can kill you if you're going to drop or just give them any sort of room. But like, you know, 17 of 30 is just egregiously high. And it's it's not going to continue. So you can look to that, but you can't, you know, if you're going to know that into this, that you're probably going to lose the rebounding battle. And I would think that if the Suns had like a, a basic fundamental weakness, it would be their base. They're essentially an average defensive rebounding team. That's a concern there. So I think you have to make more of an effort to get back in transition. That's a lot of the times going to fall on the guard, just, um, the perimeter players, just because you're going to have Ayton, even Jay Crowder is going to be around the basket a little bit more um, or Mikhail Bridges, depending on who he's defended. And so that's on CP three, that's on Devin Booker. It's on Cameron Payne. It's also, it's on Mikhail Bridges as well. Uh, and it's not that it's not on everyone, but you have to be able to get back in transition. The Pelicans offense is going to be worse when you slow it down as in, as surgical as CJ and Brandon Ingram are. And that was the other thing in this. Brandon Ingram hit just some like astronomically tough shots in in game two. This is all of which is to say I'm not actually worried as someone who picked the Suns to win the title. And I don't mean to dismiss what the Pelicans have done. And I had a exchange with um, core board Twitter user core We talk all the time. And it was a, it was just a pleasant exchange. I appreciate anyone who wants to call us out on takes. And if we're just going to have a level-headed discussion, we thought that we were being too dismissive of the Pelicans in our preview. And I, I, we tried to make the point that we weren't when we were talking about their future. But perhaps we were too dismissive of them. Uh, we're, we're Adam and I are both very high on their future. And I was higher on them than most, at, like pre CJ McCollum trade, after the CJ McCollum trade. It's clear that we underestimated them in this series, though. Again, the Devin Booker injury helps you out towards the end of game two, but the Pelicans were winning at the time he went down and they were having some real offensive success in the first half um, their ability to come out in third quarters in this series and just make adjustments with, with their personnel. Some of just the, um, the defensive stuff that they're running where I'm not going to be the one to identify like the specificity of it. But if you're looking at certain cross matchups or knowing who will put bodies on when you're around the, the glass um, knowing who CP three is going to look for coming around screens, they've done some really just, like great stuff where it feels like, Oh, this team is actually taking into account what happened during the first half and figuring out ways to stop it. Willie green deserves just a ton of, of kudos for that. As do the players, obviously. So I'm still just not concerned. If I'm the Suns. you want Devin Booker to be fine and not to miss any time, but they're deep enough to withstand this where you slide cam Johnson into your best five man unit. Even if you don't want to start him, you do have Cameron Payne who's familiar with this team. You do have Tori Craig. Who's like, you know, just the Phoenix Sun version of Tory Craig is just so freaking good uh, in general uh, not that he was great in this game he was scored zero points in his eight minutes of action. So they have options and I still think that their top end talent or the balance of their roster it just checks more boxes than New Orleans right now but New Orleans is playing with some force and ferocity uh, getting great minutes from Trey Murphy the third like I said Larry Nance Jr as well. Um, they've completely, they've essentially completely taken Devante Graham out of this series. And hopefully Al- Jose Alvarado remains a pest who can make some just good pocket passes has been hitting his standstill threes, two of two in the, in, in game two. Um, but I don't know to get back to Newt's question, what getting weird for the Pelicans would look like. And so Newt, you are free to let me know what you think uh, that is, but I would say like, those are the focuses. My main one is it'd be cool to see them be more aggressive on the offensive end to where they're. You know, they're a team that can play with varying paces. I know that a lot of people look at Chris Paul and even Devin Booker. Sometimes and think the Suns are slow. They're not slow. Um, especially with the speed off ball of Deandre Eaton and, and Mikhail Bridges. The other thing is just, they, they have to be able to neuter the Pelicans transition opportunities a little bit better. Um, as far as lineups go though, I just don't know what they could do to um, really get weird. Uh, this is still a series I would expect them to win. If you told me Brent if you told me Devin Booker doesn't play again, I'd probably pick the Suns in six or seven, to be honest with you. Um, I said Devin Booker, not play again. Sorry, tripping over my words here. I'd probably still pick the Suns, but the fact that I'm hesitating is really a testament to the Pelicans, who, by the way, are missing Zion Williamson. It's not, oh, they're so lucky that Devin Booker's out. They don't have Zion Williamson either. And so that's like a transcendent talent that every team has not had to go up against uh, this this year. So uh, this is going to be a series I'm watching for sure. We actually should dovetail this question with um, Noah Odage. Uh, long-time listener and friend of the pod as how bad did the new Orleans Pelicans overachieve this season? and How likely is it that this team will contend when Zion is healthy and they overachieved. I mean, they started the season three and 16. And from that point, they essentially had the best transition defense in the M- uh, NBA. A lot of people have brought up how well they played in third quarters. You don't look at this roster pre-season McCollum trade, post-season McCollum trade, and just think that they're built to have one of the best Transition offenses in the NBA. And so they overachieved a shit ton because they did all of this without Zion Williamson while also kind of reinventing their identity. And the fact that their defense, if you go and look at the numbers, like you wouldn't call them an elite defensive team since the CJ McCollum trade, but they haven't regressed. They've been better in some areas. So to get this team to defend at a high level with the personnel, uh, it's taken some tweaks. It's come at the cost of some offense. When you look at what they've sacrifice to really hit the offensive glass during the Jackson Hayes and Jonas Valanciunas minutes. So I still don't love that pairing, but there's no argument that it can really dirty up games um, and, and hit the offensive glass. So that's just absolutely huge. Imagining this team with Zion, just uh, put him uh, beside Jonas Valanciunas instead of Jackson Hayes. And Zion has an incredible second jump and he's going to hit the offensive glass just as hard on his own attempts and he comes with the benefit of being able to run the offense yeah there'll be some adjustments that need to be made when you look at having cj and brandon ingram integrating next to him but this team i i think they could be top four in the west next year and that's with a healthy zion if he's healthy all season which as we know is a a big fucking if and i don't mean to sound hyperbolic with that i know that jamal murray and michael porter jr should be healthy in denver I know that the Clippers should have their full cast with Kawhi Leonard. What happens if the Lakers rebound? The, the Warriors and the Suns aren't going anywhere. Uh, I mean, Utah's, Utah's probably going somewhere in the dumpster, it feels like. Are the Mavericks? They're not going to go anywhere with, with Luka. So, and the Grizzlies certainly aren't going anywhere. But I think with Zion, this team, based off what it's done this season, has a realistic chance of being a top four team in the, the Western Conference. I have legitimate questions about the um, them preserving their defense long term again they were not an elite defensive team overall even if they were exceptional in transition and Zion was part of their defensive problems last year that's someone who's not you know especially away from the ball didn't feel like he was when he's in rotations he's not making the right decisions or slow to close out to to the corners I don't know how the Jonas Valanciunas Zion Williamson front court pairing ends up faring defensively and to that end if they can get like a and it has to be better than Larry dance jr. I think he's just super versatile. He's not like this shutdown rim protector. If you can get a rim protecting five um, to put you know, and maybe you want to go with Jonas Valanciunas still, you you have him. He's a very good underrated player. I'm not trying to underrate what he does. Um, But if you have that rim protecting center coming off the bench, someone who's a higher end than Larry dance jr. And Jackson Hayes, um, or even if you're going still full born, trying to get into the miles Turner discussion or, I wouldn't recommend going after Rudy Gobert, Gobert if, or should I say, when he becomes available this offseason. Uh, that team becomes, I won't say transcendent, but they become special. And they're, they're already special in my book just because of this midseason turnaround. So they've been pleasant to watch with Zion, though, Noah. I'm just going to call it now. Let me, top five team in the West next season. Let me branch it out to that. But if you're forcing me to pick whether they're top four or not, you give them. 58 games of Zion. I'm just, he can miss 24, 25 games. Give me 58 games of Zion next season. And that's what I'm, that's the trajectory I'm uh, picking for the Pelicans. And I would expect, you know, Jose Alvarado, especially, to be a big part of what they do. But also, Trey Murphy, the third, has really shown something as a shooter during the second half of the year, essentially. Just ever since he joined the rotation, he's been, he had the highest three point percentage of all rookies, but he's been shooting like 44 something ridiculous from three since he entered the rotation for good. And he's really shown some moxie on the defensive end as well. And hitting on those types of players like that subtly deepens your rotation. And they've had some misses, Devonte Graham being, being one of them. But like when you hit on Trey Murphy the third, you have Herb Jones, you have Jose Alvarado and now CJ McComb and Brandon Ingram and then eventually Zion Williamson to run the offense. The Devonte Graham miss is not as blasphemous, even though it's, it's less than ideal. And I would still expect this team just to be aggressive, looking at its first round pick equity on the trade market as we lead into the off season. And so if you can add like a really, it doesn't have to be, if you can just add a plus rim protector, um, or if you go the elite route again, I wouldn't be against miles Turner on this team just because they have Jonas Valanciunas. He's probably not an upgrade as an individual player, but as a fit. Yeah, maybe. And so if you can get him, um, but it does, it won't take that. If you told me that they went out and they signed, Chris Boucher for some backup minutes. Maybe that's a little bit too lower end. I, I don't want to see really Mitchell Robinson get a t- like a Nicholas Claxton, maybe, although he kind of falls in the school of Larry Nance Jr. But like those, the players of that caliber, if they're checking the box that I'm talking about, I do think Nick Nick, Nick Claxton probably comes pretty close to doing so. Comes at the cost of spacing, obviously, but if he's your backup five, maybe it's not as big of a deal. Um, that, like this team is special that's the word I keep coming back to with with Zion they're going to be special and there's a pathway to them becoming even better let's move on to this question from JT uh what's the roadmap for OKC to actually use their picks to be a competitive team who or what are they waiting for to become available that's an interesting question and so when you look at we know they have a a boatload of picks moving forward And you can't get too bogged down with the future commitments because those are future commitments. Like they can be moved in the middle of the season. They're not taking up a roster spot right now. And if you want to use them in trades, you're not at the point to where you should just be swinging on these role players or non-stars. And so the right star needs to become available. And that's not to me, even though I think he would be great in OKC, let's say Bradley Beal, there's a sign of trade and he wants to go to OKC. If the cost is low enough, maybe, because it's a sign of trade rather than a flat-out trade, then, yeah, you look at it. But someone who aligns more closely with Shea, Gilgis, Alexander's timeline or the Thunder's larger timeline, because they're still a very – they showed some real just, like, energy on the defensive end this year. And I think that people who didn't watch them regularly or watch them at all look at their record or look at the way they were sitting players and think they're this flagrant, ugly – stain of a tank job and in some ways again the, the benching players towards the end of the season I think they're bad enough as is to where it, they didn't need to do that I get the frustration over that but they're so far away from a finished product we don't know we, they, they have Shea Gilders Alexander as their blue chip cornerstone I don't think we can guarantee that Josh Giddy is even that co-star the passing IQ that he showed some moments on defense as a rebounder yes um but sub 50 true shooting that's certainly not Encouraging, even there's plenty of time for him to improve upon that. So, you don't want to rush it for the wrong player. And i the way to frame this, and I don't know who to like what identify as this, you need the next Shane Gilders Alexander to become available. You got him, yes, while you were giving up a star in Paul George, but you need a team to be willing to move a superstar in that type of a timeline. Like, if Carl Anthony Towns all of a sudden wanted out of Minnesota, which I don't think he does, let's just make that clear. Um, or a or a Devin Booker in Phoenix, who clearly is not going to want out of Phoenix. You have to look for that age of a player, um, unless they're such a megastar that it really doesn't matter. And again, that's most of those times. Like Jason Tatum's not just going to want out of Boston, and Luka Doncic is in that time frame, but he's not just going to want out of Dallas. At least I don't think. Um, maybe it's some. Maybe you could aim a little bit lower if the player is young enough, very plug and play, and you know they want to be an OKC if Boston was ever open to moving Jason Tatum would be a good example here. Again, I do not know why Boston would want to do that. That's the, those are the opportunities you're waiting for. Whether the Pelicans actually use them is a different story, we saw them do it with the Paul George trade, except they didn't give up any higher-end assets there. He was viewed as sort of a rental. It's like what the Raptors did with Kawhi Leonard. Paul George just happened to resign in OKC. They're going to be more reticent than other teams to go after any stars that become available on the trade market, even if they really wanted a Bradley Beal um, he's entering free agency. So maybe that's just like a bad example, uh, but they're going to be more, you know, they're not going to go full tilt after a Damian Lillard because they don't know if he's going to want to be there longer term. It's different because there's so much time left on his deal, but you do age up your timeline quite a bit there without really ensuring yourself of anything. So it needs to be a perfect storm of, of circumstances in my book of, Oh, this star is young enough to where we don't necessarily have to care because either Stone his rookie deal or just on that sign that first extension and we're getting him or they just have to be confident. He really wants to be an OKC. Now, with that being said, they have three picks in the top 34 of this year's draft. When you look at their salary commitments for next year and take take into account non-guarantees and and options and all that jazz, they have 13 players that you could project to be under contract. So the math starts to get tight if you think there's a chance that they're going to bring back Mike Muscala. As well, like all these picks are probably or all these players that are currently on the roster are are not going to just be an OKC. I would bet against them, though, making this really big time move, um, at least right now, unless, again, there's a unique situation where a player who has a ton of time left on his deal and is maybe also young enough to align with Shea Gilgis-Alexander for them to go all in in that route. Or at the very least, you need to be a playoff team before you're making that move. Um, rather than trying to get the player that's going to make you a playoff team. I think that's what they're thinking with all these first-round picks is we're eventually going to hit strike gold on someone to pair with Alexander. Maybe they did with Josh Giddy already. They're probably gonna try and hope that they do so again, though, because Giddy is not what you would call of the sure things in this draft class. I do not believe that he is one of them. And so that's where I'm at with the thunder. I do wonder what the timeline is for them to become super competitive. We get into next season and we're in late February, March, and they're still just benching all these guys because they want to be so bad. I can understand the frustration, but this is a rebuild more than it is the Sixer style process because they do have Shea Gilgis Alexander. They put together an identity this season. So I don't have an issue with what they're doing and you do have to be more methodical in a smaller market, because bad decisions can come back to haunt you harder and longer than in certain other markets. And I would almost, I almost, I don't want to use the word admire, but I respect what OKC has done over the past couple of seasons in a market such as theirs, because I don't know that they're, yeah, they built up goodwill with those teams that were great around Russ and Kevin Durant, having James Harden for a minute, Serge Ibaka, even making the trade for Paul George, agreeing to take on Melo, like showing that they were aggressive at one point, you do get that inbuilt goodwill. That being said, it's tough to stomach two seasons of really bad basketball. Um, and look, going back to getting Chris Paul and the Russell Westbrook trade and still being good right after that. So I respect that they're willing to take such a a long time um, to go through this process. And maybe I would have a bigger issue with it if they turned around, like everyone wanted them to last year and traded Shea Giles to Alexander rather than paying him. They didn't do that though. Uh, at least definitely not yet. His extension kicks in next year. So we can wait and see, but I wouldn't expect them to do that. So that's where I'm at with the the thunder. Next question from discord bones, thugs and Highland, which GM executive is under the most pressure if their team underperforms in the playoffs without the obvious ones like Utah and Philly. Uh, And we do kind of have a Utah question uh, later, so we don't have to talk about them, but yeah, Utah and Philly are certainly the obvious ones. Um, I would be interested to think like, Oh, is this a, a Travis Schlank situation just because Atlanta has fallen off so hard from their Eastern conference finals appearance last year. And they do have some injury excuses that are part of it, but the Cam Reddish experiment, was a wash. You did end up getting good value in that trade, I think. What are you doing with the Collins Capella front court? Um, does that make sense having Collins Capella around Trey Young? DeAndre Hunter hasn't really progressed this season, even if he's still like your top wing prospect. Um, how, that Kevin Herter contract should end up being sort of net neutral. So that's a team that I could see being under just a ton of pressure. It, they're not in a series that you would expect them to win. But at the same time, it's like, okay, we were just in the Eastern Conference Finals and now we had to go through the play-in to make it through to the, um, through to even the first round where we uh, just lost there. I don't know that anyone else stands out to me on that. Sean Marks would be a big one in Brooklyn. If you lose to Boston, yes, it's, oh, we, Kyrie wasn't playing for most of the year. The James Harden stuff cropped up. We didn't have Ben Simmons, or maybe we will have Ben Simmons. We're going to get to that in a second. Um, but he he's coming back after not playing basketball for a year. The supporting cast isn't great. We dealt with inconsistent availability from Nick Claxton. The Joe Harris injury it sucks. Um, Seth Curry's been banged up since they acquired him. That being said, you get to a point when you're kind of paying all this money for a team that's supposed to be a championship inevitable, and it didn't make it out of the first round this year, and it had to go through the play-in. Kyrie's entering free agency. I would expect him to be back. Kevin Durant already extended. It seems like those two are attached at the hip. But I don't know – when I say Sean Marks' job is on the line, I don't know that you're going to get someone who has done a better job. You do look at this roster, though, and go, okay, they're really limited in what they can do with the supporting cast. Um, you hope Harris is healthy next year. You'll still have Seth Curry. Uh, what are you doing sort of after that? Are you bringing back Nick, Cla- Nick Claxton, who's a restricted free agent, who could wind up getting a, a nice little offer sheet? Are you willing to go in to the tax Um, deeper into the tax so that's ensure you're already in the tax to facilitate that i honestly don't know the the answer to that question but he would be um just another person that another executive excuse me that would be under intense pressure to do something this summer i would be it's pointless to say the warriors here because bob myers has carte blanche like if they did fall to the nuggets uh, I think there would have been a push for, oh, we need to start cashing in some of these youngsters for an established star, But they are, they clearly seem like they're doing the, the balancing act to perfection with Jordan Poole emerging, that they're going to be able to plan for the future while competing in the present. And so I don't really have anyone after that. I mean, it's like you can be disappointed if Memphis falls to Minnesota for lack of adjustments, but Taylor Jenkins went away from Steven Adams in game two. Um, this is a team that's ahead of schedule as well. They have some other equity uh, draft equity when you're looking at picks that they have all their own, um, as well as some extras from other teams that they could make a move if they wanted to. They can also have cap space this summer if they really desire, but I don't think they'll go that route. You probably could make the case that David Griffin in new Orleans uh, will be under a ton of pressure regardless of the outcome of these playoffs. And you expect the Pelicans to lose in the first round. And there's no shame in doing that to the 64 win Suns, especially when you don't have Zion Williamson, particularly after you started the season 3-16. and 16. That being said, you did kind of make, or you did make a win-now trade with C.J. McCollum and Larry Nett Jr. That that ends up working out for you just fine, but you've ascribed some sort of immediacy to your timeline with that move, and then also just the the buzz surrounding Zion's future, where he's not enthralled with the franchise, where everything's just not hunky-dory there. You're perpetually walking this tightrope of, of team building, and so he's going to just be under a ton of pressure leading into the offseason there. That's a great question though. If I had to pick just the one, I think it's going to be, I mean, David Griffin, I feel like is probably the answer. I'm just going to, let's just roll with those three. Say Sean Marks, Travis Schlank in Atlanta and uh, David Griffin in, uh, in New Orleans. That, that was a good question though. Next question comes from Luke J 37, also of discord which of the lottery teams do you expect to be the best next season? Not counting the Clippers since they would be the obvious pick. Um, shame on you for taking away what would be the obvious pick for me. This is a great question. I shouldn't be so, I think most people just believe it will be the um, the, Cavs, the Cavs. I'm not so certain. Um, it could be. You're going to, I assume, you You should be healthier because you're going to have the option to bring Colin Sexton back. He is a restricted free agent. I'm just curious as to what their offense looks like next season. Gary, Darius Garland clearly made the leap. Jared Allen busted out some different moves. He's just more dynamic on offense, I'll put it that way, than people really think. Evan Mobley, watching him, I think I've said it on this pod before, he looks like an eventual hybrid of Kevin Darnett and Kevin Durant. Will he be that in year two? They could just use some extra real wing depth, um, Isaac Okoro was fantastic for them defensively, but they don't really have a wing who's going to generate offense, unless you consider Taurus Lavert a wing. How does that dynamic play out between he, Colin Sexton, and Darius Garland if they even move forward with it? Um, do you like sort of having this ultra huge front court with Kevin Love, Larry Market, and Mobley, and and Jared Allen? We saw them fade this year. I think that had more to do with injuries than anything else. Uh, th- so they could they could be the pick. I'm not going to pick the Knicks. Uh, anyone waiting on that, I I apologize. I'm intending to pick the Pacers more than I should be. There's the rumor from Mark Stein that they have made it known they're going to trade Malcolm Brogdon. And so if you're going to move him, I'm going to take that to mean that you're open to moving Miles Turner, even though Turner's younger and doesn't necessarily have the injury history, that you'll also be open to moving Buddy Heald. And if you're going to approach the season as quasi-sellers again, if they left this roster alone, though, They could be really good. Bring back T.J. Warren if he tends to be healthy um, or figures out a way to be healthy. That would be absolutely monstrous for them. So I'm tempted to pick them more so than you would think. But I I do believe that the, the answer is going to be the Cavs. It could be the Lakers. I just don't know what the move is. Based on the reaction of fans from the Pacers not wanting two picks and two swaps for Brogdon and Heald in exchange to take on the one year of Russell Westbrook leads me to believe that you're not going to be able to turn him into an impact player. And so I won't rule out a team that has LeBron James and Anthony Davis. If they're both going to be fully available, that being said, I don't know that they would be my first choice. And so my, my top three would probably be some combination of the the Cavaliers, the Lakers and the, the Pacers. I'm just, I'm, I'm enthralled by them. You look, if you want to pick uh, Charlotte, because you think that they're going to make some nice decisions after uh, the ending in the play in as the, in that first game once more, more power. They have a there. There's a base. I don't understand why the the fans seem so as upset as they did. At least I'm not trying to single out any Charlotte Hornets fan. To me, they met expectations. If not exceeded winning like five or six more games, at least the equivalent of this year, while not getting better availability from Gordon Hayward, while not really having a center of the future in play. Uh, if you want to pretend that's fine. Detroit by way of having Cade Cunningham. Yeah, that certainly matters. Could you see the Spurs doing some weird things this summer? Like they have the assets to go out and make a trade. Uh, they have something special with Kelvin Johnson, Jakob Pertle, Dejounte Murray, Devin Vassell. I really like Josh Primo and Trey Jones as well. Josh Richardson played kind of well for them after the trade deadline. So th- could they be that team? I, I again, I laid out what my three picks would be. The Pacers, just if they leave their roster alone, they won't be my singular pick. I would go with the Cavs or the Lakers first and foremost. I don't think the other teams really have a chance, though. I'm just writing off the Kings in perpetuity at this point. They don't deserve any of my faith anymore, as much as I love De'Aaron Fox. Portland, they have Damian Lillard. I'm still just not sure what the plan is there. Houston and OKC are not on those timelines. Neither is Orlando. Like I said, Detroit, by way of having Cade Cunningham, I don't really know what to do with the Knicks. I think they're not going to be able to take the step forward that they need until they, until they move on from Julius Randle would be my, I don't even know if that's a spicy stance, but that that is my stance. Um, Strop's asks, from Discord, favorite announcers broadcast teams. This is always a good one. Uh, the Nets and the Timberwolves are probably my two favorite. Give them a lot of credit. I really do enjoy the Suns broadcast as well. The Knicks one can have some really good moments. I also shout out to like the game operation staff for the Grizzlies. They consistently have just the best mid game stuff going on. Their broadcast is like fine to listen to as well. It's not too homery for my liking. It's not on the level of like, uh, I really just, I can't stand the Mavs broadcast. No one can stand the Warriors broadcast at this point. So yeah, I think, Minnesota, Brooklyn, and yeah, I'll go Memphis. Like, shout out to them. New Orleans has a pretty good one as well, too. But Memphis, just the all-around experience is, you know, again, for the in between the timeouts. And I'm getting, like, the NBA feed because I cover the league and that's something I have access to. Um, so I'm not – like, not everyone's able to see that. But just, like, seeing what's going on in the middle of the game, there's really some pageantry to just, like, these small swaths of time uh, it, it really impresses me, and so if you have the ability to, those are that's a broadcast I would recommend checking out, as well as Phoenix, Minnesota, Brooklyn, uh, New Orleans is is a good one, and I don't know how you couldn't love Walt Clyde Fra- Frazier rhyming on the next one when he and uh, Mike Breen are calling games. It's it's still a lot of fun for me. Caveman from Discord asks, how should the Nets integrate Ben Simmons if he becomes available by Game Four or Five? Is he is he better than Bruce Brown in the short term? in Saturday coming, and then in the long term. As far as integrating him, I mean, tether him to the Kyrie KD minutes, I think, so you just lighten his load as much as possible on offense. Or maybe you don't want to do that because he's so used to to having the ball. I would say, I don't know what the lineup should look like, but you need to probably can't have a true big next to him. I don't think the Simmons-Nick Claxton lineup is going to fare. You'd probably have to stagger him from Bruce Brown as well. And so you certainly can't have, there needs to be at least three shooters on the floor with Ben Simmons at all times. And so you can't play him with both, with both Bruce Brown and then a big it's one or the other. And I wouldn't even recommend going that route on defense. I guess you could just hope that he's ready. So you're tethering him to the uh, Boston's best Like, Is he going after Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown? Um, we know that he'll be on a minutes cap if he comes back. So I, I, <sighs> I don't really know what the solution is here after giving this a lot of thought. I I I ended up on like, you know, Seth Curry, Kyrie, KD are probably the three players you need to play alongside him most. You could throw Patty Mills in there as well if you're um well, I mean, that could be a lineup. If you have Ben Simmons and KD on the court, like maybe you could get away with those three guards. I just don't I think you need to set him up on offense to streamline his role and to be as successful as possible. As for whether he's better than Bruce Brown in the short term and long term, short term, we don't know. Bruce Brown has been pretty streaky slash on fire from three. Uh, so there's that element. He also does not need the ball on offense. We've seen him make plays out of the short roll. He's not going to have a problem hanging in the dunker, dunker spot. And while Ben Simmons has done the dunker spot stuff in smaller volumes, it's never just been his full-time role. It's it's happened in the playoffs, I guess. But like that's just never been something he's done. He's never been the primary screener for a huge amount. Of time, that is something to consider. In all of this. this, is why I think no matter what you're doing with him, surround him with as much shooting as possible. Uh, but defensively, is Bruce Brown going to be better for you right now? Ben Simmons is going to give you more positional malle- malleability there. I also think he's by far the higher IQ passer. And if you're willing to get out and transition a bunch, I don't know. Is Ben? That's the. I mean, that would <laughs> that would be a great question to to really ask is Ben Simmons at back going to hold up in transition and it should, if you're going to play him at all, but you look at his next team as a team that doesn't generate a ton of pressure on the rim. And they're also just not going to spend an inordinate amount of time in transition. They were 12th in transition frequency this season. That was a number that was actually higher than I was expecting, uh, but get Ben Simmons off and running is what you could also do. So put him in lineups that are going to, promote that. And so a Seth Curry is going to help you there. Even a Patty Mills is going to help you there. Um KD and Kyrie are going to like to slow slow down the game. But if Ben Simmons has the ball, like yeah, they will fan out or they will, Katie especially, will get up and down the floor. That's probably the best way to integrate him on offense, though. So just put him into that the position to be both simple and succeed, which I don't know is easy when you look at the rest of their roster because a lot of it Some of these lineups I'm talking about are going to be predicated on Ben Simmons being ready defensively to hold up under his usual, if not heavier workload. Otherwise, you do have this intrinsic need for playing him with Nick Claxton and or Bruce Brown. Uh, They might do not play him with Andre Drummond, please, for the love of God, do not play Ben Simmons with Andre Drummond, Steve Nash. That better not be a thing here. But that would be my stance. I also personally don't think he should play. Uh, I know that that ends up punting. You can call it on a season of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving's prime. I would argue that that already happened by Kyrie not getting vaccinated earlier in the year. Also with the James Harden stuff, just going belly up. You've kind of already, it'd be a nice story, I guess, if you beat the Celtics, but the road that you have to go through in the playoffs, probably the bucks after this. And then like, my God, like, I mean, oh wait, they don't go through the bucks after this because they're the two seven. So you're playing the winner of three, six. Like, okay, your gift just going through the playoffs is still just going to be super difficult here. So that's just like it would be the Bucs. It is three. I'm just I my matchup's wrong. So if you're in the Nash you're going through the Bucs and then after that, like, oh, who could await there? Philly or Miami? Like that's a really that's a tough path. And then you get to the West where you're gonna face Phoenix or Golden State. So um I just would rather see Ben Simmons get a training camp with this team, have some more off time to be integrated to make sure that his back is okay because back injuries can be fickle. If he's going to play though, I just laid out what I would do. No, no Andre Drummond, Ben Simmons minutes. Uh, I would prefer to surround him with four shooters in any given lineup, two of them being KD and um, Kyrie Irving. I would also look at what you could do is, and probably becomes harder because Kevin Durant's one of the best shooters of all time to surround him with enough shooting in these lineups, but the Kevin, the no Kevin Durant minutes have given you some issues in the past, even though you did win them in game one of this series, uh, maybe look at pairing him with next to Kyrie Irving specifically, um, during those stretches. And so then, you know, that there's only one person he's kind of jockeying for touches with insofar as Ben Simmons is actually jockeying for, for touches, but that might be sort of another gap there. And then round out those lineups as you see fit, maybe you can squeeze Bruce Brown into that lineup. Um, but you can't really play, it would be Bruce Brown or Nick Claxton for me. Again, I'm going to, I'm going to be pretty bullish on that element of this. Next question comes from do nationally televised games really determined end of year awards. That was Darkwing duck from discord. I'm going to scroll down to my Google doc here because we have some other like thoughts that are or questions that are tangentially related to this. Uh, I'll loop those next two together. So Nick, Wright. Uh, Ass on Twitter, will Nick Wright ever be right? Uh, That was from Paul. Uh, I might have just wrote down the wrong name there. And so, like, there's just this... There's. I'm assuming this pertains specifically to Rudy Gobert and Nikola Jokic. The awards we're talking about are regular season awards. And so I can't, like, view what's happening in the postseason as something that has this... Transcendent impact on who I would choose for MVP or Defensive Player of the Year. If you're using it as a tiebreaker, as who would you rather have in a playoff series? If it really was down to that, and it was Jokic or Giannis for you, and that's what you wanted to use as the the tiebreaker, I don't think I would fault you there. I also think though that we tend to oversimplify these nationally televised games. Um, what happens in the playoffs? We make these referendums on ultra small sample sizes when, in the end the NBA for the good teams is an 82 plus game sample size across the season. And so the macro picture matters here. And if anything, what's happening in Denver with the nuggets going up against the warriors and kind of seeing like they're up for slaughter. I don't mean to say that before we go through a game three in Denver. Um, it only to me makes it more impressive that Jokic put them, uh, drag them to 48 wins there. I, I just don't understand what the problem is with that or why it's so hard to separate. There are the the people, the paid employees, the fans that have their agendas, and some of them are pretty just obvious about it and it's all in good nature, which is fine. But this idea that Nikola Jokic is a faux MVP or that the computer skewed the returns in his favor, it's just, it's not fair and it's lazy and it's oversimplified and I get tired of it. That being said, like there is higher end Analysis out there, and we have to remember that the talking heads on TV—they're paid to whether it's in specific those these exact terms or not. It's an engagement at all costs type of industry now, and we can bemoan it. I'm I've bemoaned it privately um, at times with people that I trust. I've had just wholesale conversations about it. But however you want to watch or consume the league, that avenue is essentially available to you. Uh, NBA media is flawed in just so many ways when it comes down to the still just a glaring lack of diversity. Um, But it's also sort of a, a golden age of options. When you just look at the localized coverage, I think team podcasts and writers have just become so important this day and age, especially ones I have infinite respect for beat writers, but also those who are more detached from the teams and their, their opinions, their livelihood isn't, so tightly moored to access that maybe they could be just a little more honest or a little bit more uh, punitive with their coverage. And there's just a nice mix of everything. I try to consume as much of it. And look, I'll even admit that I do at times just feel like, and I don't want to, I'm not conventional national media, but as someone who talks about, writes about, puts a lot of effort into trying to cover the NBA at large as fairly as possible. Um, it, I don't. I hate when it feels like I'm being looped into like, oh, the national media doesn't talk about Rudy Gobert enough, or the national media is against Nikola Jokic. Some of these like um, adversarial takes against Jokic and Gobert, I don't even see them. Like, I'll see someone tweet about it, oh, they, but they told me that Nikola Jokic couldn't pass, or just something stupid like that, and I'll just be like, is my Twitter bubble so insulated that I just didn't even see this take? Is it an actual take? Who are you following, or or listening to, or or watching? that is saying these things and if you're that fundamentally disagree or you think it's unfair, like there are other ways to go. And no, I promise I'm not bitter that poor poor me who doesn't get like enough recognition for the work he puts in the harbor Knox and Bleach report. That's really not what I was what I meant. It's just like I I don't want to be looped into like the lower brow analysis. I'm not like the X's and O savants that you're gonna get if it's like an, an achaeus jump Duncan no, but I do put a ton of effort into covering the league at large and going deeper and trying to have a pulse on every team. And also what I do think we forget, and this is the the localized coverage is so important, but it's, I've come to view my job as one very unserious as anyone can tell, like I, I cover a fucking game, but also to have a pulse on the entire league better than the localized people. And it's not to say that I'm better at my job. And the thing that's beautiful about the localized podcasts and writers, they are seeing every team because the teams that they cover go up against them, but they, they do a great job, like stepping into the national waters. And I know a lot of them are watching and covering more than um, just their team's basketball. You look at Caitlin Cooper and the Twitter thread she does and some of the podcast topics that she covers the, the guys, in the timeline podcast do a fantastic job of having a pulse in the entire league. But for the fans in general, it's my job to have a better pulse on the entire league um, then even not just the fan of a singular team, but of the, the general NBA fan. And that's what I'm there for. That's why I've come to view my job. And so I put a lot of effort into doing that. I get bitter to myself. I don't really voice it unless it's to this podcast at this very moment about when I see those things about the national media, there's like a, a pain inside of me. And I have to remember if you, if you don't think you fall under that umbrella, then it's not about you, but that is something I struggle with. I do think though, that we have to remember that some of this is whether you want to, I won't go as far as to say it's an agenda, but it's for the sake of drumming up conversation. Those are the easiest talking points to have, or the easiest talking points that will incite reaction. And that's what a lot of people want at the end of the day. That's how um, that, that's just their job, whether it's specifically stated in their description or not, you look at Rudy Gobert specifically, which I think this question was also aimed at It's just when, the discourse around him has just been fucking absurd because he is not the problem for the jazz's defense. You go back and look at game two against Dallas. Yeah. There were some things that I guess he did wrong, but he doesn't adjust to what I would consider their base defense a ton of the time because they don't make the adjustments. Like, is it on him to decide like, Oh, I have to change up my, my coverage here. And instead of helping um, towards the, the driver that I need to be closer to the guy in the corner um, the jazz have been designed to funnel people towards Rudy Gobert all season. The amount of ground that he has to cover on certain possessions uh, to where he's around the rim, but he be pulled away from the basket. He's covering out to um, the corners. Like it's just, it's overwhelming. And their failure to put the right perimeter defenders around him, people who can contain the ball, um, not get that consistent effort from Donovan Mitchell. That's the issue. And it's even the Donovan Mitchell blow buys. Like there's an element of that. Yes. It's not by design, but like you have Built your defense around funneling people towards Rudy Gobert. Is it his fault that it's falling apart when teams are better built to attack it and work the corners or put your entire team in rotations that they're not built to handle? Shout out Boyan Bogdanovich. So it's just, I don't understand why we can't look at that and identify it. Even as someone who's such a basketball idiot as myself can understand that you how do you look at the game and say, oh, he's such a liability when they go small. Then somehow you're not watching the game properly, or you're just saying something for the sake of saying something at at some point. And so yeah, I get that it can be mega frustrating on both sides of the fence. Then it all of a sudden turns into like this war between analytics versus the eye test when it's just anyone that matters, I have never seen only rely on one. Anyone that I respect or that is Really has an impact on the way that people think about basketball. I've never just seen them point to one catch all thing eye test, analytics, whatever one, one stat, one play, one singular game referendum. So I don't even know why that has to be a discussion. Um, if you're complaining that Rudy Gobert didn't win Defensive Player of the Year, or if you're even, you know, you think Giannis should have been the MVP. We also have to do a better job of recognizing that there are multiple deserving candidates and that a lot of this stuff comes down to a matter of taste or preference, which we're going to get into with these two questions, which I thought were fascinating. So the first one comes from Henrik Ahmed. Statistically, who is the best defender, Gobert or Smart? And then Ryan Mortensen asks, thoughts on Smart winning defensive player of the year over Rudy? I'd love to see a side-by-side comparison of all the defensive stats. And so here's the thing. Defensive stats are going to be, inherently flawed anyway there's just at least maybe there's you know internally teams have proprietary metrics that do a better job of measuring impact but the ones that are publicly available the ones that i even know of that aren't publicly available there's just it's impossible to quantify the defense in the same way that we do offense uh what also gets tough but let's go let's look at the smart gobert date um debate specifically So in defensive estimated plus minus, Rudy Gobert ranks fifth in the league this season. Smart was 13th. This is just the regular season. In defensive LeBron, Gobert was first. Smart was 64th. In luck adjusted, regularized adjusted, plus minus, Rudy Gobert was 16th. Smart was 57th. In defensive Raptor, Rudy Gobert was fourth. Smart was 41st. So you look at some of those kitchen sink metrics and you think it's outrageous that Smart would be the defensive player of the year discussion. But their roles are so different. You look at the matchup difficulty ratings of these two, because Smart is tackling more primary ball handlers, more explosive perimeter guys, covering more ends of the positional spectrum. He ranks 39th in matchup difficulty for this past season. Uh, That was among anyone who logged at least 1,000 minutes. Rudy Gobert was 180th. So Rudy Gobert's trash because he is matchup difficult. Like, are we going to go that route as well? Their roles are so different. Rudy Gobert contested 6.9 shots at the rim per game this year. Marcus Smart was at 2.1, which is actually high for someone his size. There's such a fundamental difference in what they're responsible for. And it's fine if you want to make the case that bigs are always going to be more pivotal to the defensive model. And so they should get the bump in the defensive player of the year discussion. If that's a philosophy that you ascribe to, it is perfectly fine. Uh, I won't argue with you against it. I mean, if you like, there's been support out there, which is why I'm accepting it. I'm not just saying someone could come up to me and say, I'll only vote for a big and that's that. But what did we just talk about with the Jazz two seconds ago? About the, how the lack of perimeter defenders or quality help defenders around him have really fucked the Jazz over and made it easy for people to think that he's the problem. So if perimeter defenders are that important to Rudy Gobert's success or let's say failure in utah for certain stretches doesn't that kind of make the case that a marcus smart or mikhail bridges is super valuable on defense because they have to pick up the the toughest singular assignments they're going to be at um guarding the primary actions more than he is yeah he's responsible for more he's calling out coverages uh people point out that marcus smart does that in boston i would also like to point out that Mikael bridges aside from just covering the toughest assignment on a night-to-night basis uh is one of the best transition defenders that honestly i've ever seen um but also just makes the job easier on a big like deandre ayton because it shrinks the scope of what deandre ayton is responsible for and i'm not saying even though i thought people thought that the pick for marcus martin mikhail bridges as defensive player of the year was fucking stupid and i just i won't I won't subscribe to that. I believe they were my top three. I can't remember who had third on my ballot. I should really look at that. I'd Gobert second behind Bridges. If Rudy Gobert would have won, I'm not going to give you any pushback. Could it have been voter fatigue on some level? Maybe. Could it be the fact that people look too much into team stats or success in general rather than the team success or stats with that player on the floor and the Jazz were elite defensively with Rudy Gobert on the floor? Maybe. Is there too much value even placed in that because the Suns were technically better defensively without Mikhail Bridges on the floor, but that's only because of He's going up against starter competition, the level of individual competition he faces. And also the Suns were still elite with him on the court. It's just that the other lineups he weren't in posted better defensive ratings against lesser competition for the most part. There is context and reasons for everything. You just have to dig a little bit deeper. So I do think some of the coverage, I'm not going to call it national coverage or localized coverage or TV coverage. Some of the coverage has gotten lazy and frustrating, but the the right coverage or the one that aligns with how you want to view the game is out there. And we just don't have to pay the ones that are truly out there too much credence. I don't think no one I know is taking what Nick Wright specifically says, or even what Stephen a says and allowing it to shape their basketball opinions. Those are people who are responsible for covering the full breadth of sports and rather than just basketball. And so if you're just a fan of the NBA specifically or a team in the NBA specifically, basketball in general, throw the WNBA college basketball into there as well, you're going to probably have a better pulse on what's happening in the league than the people who have to cover a, a wider scope of of sports in general. And so it's, it, it trickles down like that to where Nick Wright is not going to be as in tune with the NBA as Zach Lowe. And Zach Lowe though, isn't going to be as in tune with the Pelicans rotations as the in the no podcast guys, Mason Ginsburg and Schmidt Dua, because that's the team that they're covering on a regular basis. And Zach Lowe has to cover the entire league. I don't think one person is more or less important than the other, or one, one type of coverage. They're all important. Like I said, I have so much respect for the localized coverage, the localized podcast. They I try to listen to as many as possible. I would categorize as I listen to more than most, and I'm sure much less than some. Um, And they help me a lot in how I approach covering their teams and the game in general. So every, like, that's important. And I'm not saying that what a Nick Wright or the talking heads are doing isn't important. It's just, it's a different type of coverage. It's not meant to be that granular. And there's more of um, high stakes engagement at play there that's just my opinion on that matter so to this smart winning defensive player of the year rudy gobert i don't have an issue with it as long as we're willing to have honest discussions about it It if you picked marcus smart because you think rudy gobert uh is a liability against smaller lineups or just a liability in general in the playoffs then no i don't i don't want to say that your opinion is invalid but i'm going to fundamentally disagree with that uh, if you think it's dumb that Marcus Smart won defensive player of the year because he didn't lead in any of the defensive metrics, as someone who does place a lot of stock and stats in general, I'm, I'm going to think that I'm going to fundamentally disagree with that as well because it's what, what we can tell at least from these defensive metrics is it seems easier to quantify the impact of bigs, whether that's because of the volume of shots they're facing around the rim and rebounds they're grabbing. It's just easier to quantify what it seems. I don't know this for a fact. So, that's where I landed. that. I don't have an issue with Marcus Smart winning. I wouldn't have had an issue if it was Rudy Gobert, I wouldn't have an issue if it was Giannis, Antetokounmpo, Mikael Bridges, Jaron Jackson Jr. Uh, I think that we collectively also just have to get better with this idea of there's you see it when the all-NBA teams come out or when the when the award finalists came out. Like we're naming the snubs, Jordan Poole from the most improved player discussion from the top three. The name who he has to replace. Like that's how we have to do this. Have an honest discussion about it. Uh, But also be comfortable with the idea that, yeah, you know what? Like it could have been Jordan Poole over John Morant or Darius Garland or, or uh, I can't even remember who the other finalist was. Wow. Blank. Dejounte Murray, who was actually my pick. Wow. Uh, And that's just, that's just life because there were so many uh, deserving candidates. Let's be better about sort of accepting that as a reality. Um, That was a fun little long ass rant. Let's get to this question from Jake G uh if you are the hornets how do you use their first two picks in this year's draft pick at both package for a vet or a combination of both for context the hornets are holding uh number 13 and number 15 now here's where it gets interesting is we also kind of tangentially mentioned this when we were talking about the which teams from the lottery will be the best next season the Hornets need a big like they and they need to change the way that they play defense. A lot of people say that part of Brego's failure was he didn't optimize Mason Plumley on defense. If your job is to optimize Mason Plumley starting center on defense, you're fighting. I don't know, I don't know what else to say there. Uh, but they, they need just more of a defensive backbone, and that that starts on the perimeter for or doesn't start, but that includes having more of a base and a, a consistent approach on the perimeter. But it's going to start with just having better backline protection the where you're not as weak or vulnerable on the glass, giving up second chance points opportunities or being put in weird pick and roll situations. Um, you could go the route of, Hey, let's go get miles Turner from Indiana. Let's just say he's available and you have two lottery picks that you can move after the the draft. Yeah. And you have James book You have Kai Jones. You, you could go that route. I just wouldn't suggest it because I don't think the Hornets are good enough. And I, for some reason, I feel like there's just, Uh, a misconception of what their expectations should be. The other thing that I think it's important to note, I don't subscribe to the idea that that bigs are eminently replaceable. Certain ones are not. Uh, When you look at the Knicks, do you need to pay Mitchell Robinson when you have Jericho Sims on the roster based off what he showed? I don't know. I think it's an oversimplification to say, Oh, why pay Mitchell Robinson when you can get Jericho Sims at number 58? That's not what I'm saying here. My Gut instinct, though, is that you could use one of those lotto picks on a big is, you know, I, look, as someone who is only, I'm not even like ankle deep in draft coverage at the moment. Uh, so as someone who I'm just throwing out names here, like is Duran available? That's someone who they viewed as a lottery prospect. Um, there's Williams. He has a seven foot seven inch wingspan. And uh, this is probably, of course, Jake Wasserman has showed great touch. Uh, around uh, flashes of great touch and and shot blocking. Could you put either one of those guys that they're available into your rotation immediately? There has to be a commitment to doing that. Uh, they didn't do it with Kai Jones. Maybe he just wasn't ready. We did see some more minutes from JT Thor. But I do believe that you could get for what the Hornets need, like a defensive rebounder, uh, a, a shot blocker. You could get that in lottery and someone who could play right away. And so there's no need to go mortgaging more of your future to get that big with that being said you still need the veteran presence because i don't know that you want a rookie uh tasked with sort of salvaging saving rescuing whoever you want to frame it your defense here i also think that you could do that with the mid-level exception uh the non taxpayers mid-level which is what charlotte's going to be working with this summer it's i don't know the names i've already mentioned nick nick claxton mitchell robinson uh those are two names that certainly spring to mind you have you know like does Chris Boucher? Like those are names that should be available for that money. And if you want like higher end options, then yeah, sure, you take to the trade market. I don't know how higher end those options necessarily need to be. I would. This is the cop out answer, but I would go the route of. And I'm I'm just going through the big men free agents right now. It's just JaVal McGee is not going to be a game changer for you. Uh, are you, I mean, you don't have the cap space to sign DeAndre. And I don't know why the Suns would want to even engage in sign and trade talks at this point. So there's not a ton of options, but like there are guys who I think could upgrade your defense who are going to be at least a four. I mean, even Kavon Looney in Charlotte, I don't know how much he's going to help you with maybe all of your core problems, but he has more switch. He has more switch to him. He's only 26 at the moment. So Like Those are routes you could go. You could straddle the two lines, which maybe is the cop-out answer here, is can you get Nick Claxton or Mitchell Robinson and then also draft another big? So now you have three bites at the apple and Kai Jones, Mitchell Robinson or Nick Claxton, and number 13 or 15. Uh, Do you try and use number 13 or 15 to address another need and see what you could still pair with Kai Jones, a pick, and James Booknight? Does that get you in the Miles Turner discussion? Uh, if not, does it get you in the discussion for anybody else for this team, though, if this is what we're sort of like, if if this is the head that we're coming to, I guess, no, I'm not looking at them and saying, you need to go after Rudy Gobert, like throw the full boat future picks, which get iffy because you have that technically that commitment to um, the Knicks, or I guess it's to, to Charlotte. Now, is that the one that they traded away? Well, I'll double check that really quick. So that gets a little, complicated but um yeah so it's to Atlanta but so that and that's in 2023 so that makes it a little a little bit finicky uh I'm not I I would not urge them to go after Rudy Gobert it be a perfect fit if the asking price is low enough then sure I would rather see like what do the Spurs want for a Jakob Pertle there just to have an elite rim protector um who could do a, a huge job for you We call the Sixers about a beat I'm clearly just kidding there like you could I would prefer that route for them. Uh if you can't, if the mid level isn't enough to get Mr. Robinson, like or the Knicks willing to engage in sign and trade talks there. That's what I think could help help you. I would even before I'm mortgaging the future on a a Rudy Gobert, like to that extent, knowing how much Rudy Gobert makes down the line and just the urgency you all of a sudden attach to year three of a I'd prefer to go like the Chris Boucher route if he's someone that you could pick up uh someone who has a little bit more bounce is a is a pretty okay rim, rim protector will will hit jump shots for you or i can test jump shots for you i he also will hit jump shots if, if anyone cares turner i would get that like that would feel like the middle ground acquisition if you're giving up both your late lotto picks for turner let's say two of those picks in book night i'm two of kai jones book night and those picks i'm not you know if that's all it costs to get Rudy Gobert too by all means do it. You you can go ahead and do that. But don't don't go the nuclear route for a big. And I would also argue that you need to commit to a direction first here. Because what are you what else are you giving up to bring in these names that we just mentioned? Specifically a Miles Turner or a if you go the Rudy Gobert route. Who who else is part of those trades because you need money to match those salaries. It actually might be easy to step out your way to Miles Turner, but Rudy Gobert makes a, a shit ton. Uh, but you're just kind of wallowing in the wilderness at the moment. And you have Terry Rozier about to enter the first of a four-year 96 million dollar extension. Gordon Hayward is two years, 60 plus million dollars left on his deal. His availability has been wonky. Miles Bridges is a restricted free agent. He's probably gonna cost you near max or actual max money to to bring back. Are you committed to this core? or is it a better route to you know i know cap space doesn't go that far in charlotte but to get out of the deals rosier and hayward use that extra flexibility down the line to take on other bad deals attached to picks or just to trade for some players um, that elevate your immediate ceiling i know there's probably a little bit more anxiety in charlotte over Lamelo's future some outlets have already started talking about it i will believe that a player turns down his rookie extension when I see it. And so worst case scenario, you still have, let's say five years of LaMelo with you. Um, that is time to figure it out. You don't need to rush this. And I don't know that they're good enough at the top of their roster aside from even if he's LaMelo and Miles Bridges to just say, okay, like let's go after the Rudy Gobert and Gordon Hayward and Terry Rozier, whatever happens to them. Like that's not really that essential. You have Kelly O'Brien Jr. There. So I I think they need to choose a direction because if they want to be a team where 43 wins over the course of the two-game season is a disappointment, it's not, to me, just a matter of acquiring some upgrades at the center spot. There are going to have to be some more wholesale changes to that roster where it's, you know, I don't know that your primary wing options is Gordon Hayward and Kelly Oubre Jr., uh, how far that's gonna get you, even I don't really know like the value of Miles Bridges as your second best player at this point. I think you probably need someone who's gonna make him your third or fourth best player to truly optimize him. And so what are you going to do to actually make that happen? You're going to have to be more aggressive on the trade market, and I don't know who's out there that you can feasibly get because again, I don't think this is just you can get Miles Turner and you're there. I think he helps, but you're still gonna fall for fall short of the measuring stick to which this team appears to be holding itself or at least the fan base is holding itself. I don't know. And so I'm more of a fan of the gradual approach here, or at least at least realistic expectate, expectations. So I would recommend that Horns fans temper their expectations and maybe honestly think about the roster that's in place right now. And if they want the team to do better or the team is dead set on doing a lot better, really transforming their position within the competitive landscape, uh, it's going to just take a, a a bunch of, of overhaul and, and dice rolls and and aggressive moves. Let's get to these last couple questions here. Uh, Frankie Bacon and the, and the screaming Popes asked, why are the Kings like that? I'm just assuming he's asking, why are the Kings in the sense that, you know, they're not bringing Alvin Gentry back as head coach and they have the second lowest winning percentage in the NBA since they last made the playoffs in 2006. If you're curious as to who has the lowest winning percentage, it is the Minnesota Timberwolves. So uh, I guess shout out to the Kings for not being dead last in that category. Do I think the Kings are going to be substantially better next season if I frame it as that? I don't have any faith in the organization right now. The the, the Demata Sabonis trade, while justifiable from certain angles, I think it sort of increases their aimlessness, at least for the moment. Um, what you need to see is what they do over the offseason. Where are they moving Rashawn Holmes and what are they getting back for him? Um, are there going to be these weird rumors about De'Aaron Fox's future who just, just FYI is not an albatross on his current contract. He's, he's a fringe all-star player and he finished the season in that capacity. So I'm not worried as worried as I was about the, the partnership between he and Sabonis. They had some good connections in chemistry before, uh, Sabonis went down, but this roster you need Harrison Barnes there because he's sort of, you know, maximizes the fit between those two and just the rest of the roster you clearly have a defensive presence in davion mitchell you need to hit on your first round pick you need actual wings on this roster dante Divincenzo, vincenzo who's going to be a restricted free agent um justin holidays kind of whatever uh, you need to have more inspiring options there like you have to me maybe four core players on this roster five if you want to include this year's lottery pick so it'd be lottery picks a bonus barnes Fox and Davion Mitchell. And I can't include Rashawn Holmes in there just because his future in Sacramento is is clearly, uh, he's on the way out of there because you can't make this a bonus trade and plan on holding onto Rashawn Holmes long-term. I don't know what the move out there is that they make though. I said that I wanted them to do something, anything if it was cashing in some of their chips for a star that it made sense. I just thought said star would be more of a directional harbinger than he actually was. And that's no, offense to Sabonis. He's a fantastic player. I just don't know how much he nudges their ceiling in the, the Western conference on his own with this current roster. Uh, the Kings are not going to have cap space this year to work with or So they're not going to have like this big spending advantage when it comes to poaching free agents. And also newsflash, this is not the summer to post uh, poach uh, big time free agents. Anyway, what can they do on the trade market? I mean, picks and davion mitchell like are the package and you have some nice salary filler there assuming you don't want to give up uh sabonis or fox in those negotiations then who's really available uh this team needs like a star way more than anything and those don't grow on trees and the ones that exist like are just not readily up for grabs whenever we're talking about the next disgruntled superstar it always kind of feels like we're talking about a guard or a big oddly enough it's never like oh I mean Luka Doncic I guess some people flirted with but that's still years out um it's always just the I mean like you don't hear about oh is Jason Tatum you know, disenchanted in in Boston it's just it doesn't seem to work out that way it's oh the Carl Anthony Towns in Minnesota or the the Zion clock is already ticking Lamelo in Charlotte so not you know trying to give th- those conversations merit I'm just that's just how it seems to pan out. So they need to to really figure out a way to ma- to just improve their perimeter defense, improve the number of shooters that they're going to put around uh, De'Aaron Fox and Sabonis. And I think they could probably just use another type of secondary ball handler. Davion Mitchell showed sort of flashes to be that guy, but you want a more bankable option, I would think. I would expect some pretty seismic turnover from them over the offseason. They're another team that needs to commit to a direction because I still think they're kind of stuck in the sub middle. Uh, they're clearly trying to angle for immediate semi contention, whatever you want to call it. And so that's just going to entail more swings, which is because it's going to entail that that's what we should expect from the offseason. If they don't do that, if there's more of a status quo here, that's a fucking problem. Green screen Greg will be our last question, I believe. I'll make sure that I didn't miss. Uh, oh no, there's one more after his. Uh, actually, two more after his. Green screen Greg asks Luca, question mark. Thank you, green screen Greg. Luca is anticipating to return from his calf strain in either game three or game four. Utah should be scared as hell about that because if you think Jalen Brunson. And Spencer Dinwiddie picking apart your crunch time defense is a problem. Wait till you meet Luka Doncic doing the same. Not as you know, there's a change of speed to the way he plays. Stop and start. Maybe not. He's not as fast as going downhill. Spencer Dinwiddie can accelerate from sort of a stop quicker, and then Jalen Brunson is way more explosive. But he will he will find your weak spot and he will press on it. If Luka comes back, let's say game four, I'm going to pick the Mavs in seven. I think. If it's game three, I'll stick with the Mavs instead. If Luka comes back before game five, the Mavs will win this series. Um, because I'm just anticipating that Dallas, even without him, would steal one of two in Utah. I don't I don't trust the Jazz anymore. I trust Mike Conley. I do trust Rico Bear's defense. Uh I trust Royce O'Neal. The trust meter starts to run thin after that. Donovan Mitchell is a playoff killer on offense, but he it just goes through these really bad decision-making stretches. It's it's terrible defense, and then it's just like weird shots on offense maybe too early in the shot clock or missing someone who is trailing in the corner that he could have found and you know avoiding them for just like this contested layup um there were a lot of these just like single pass possessions for them down the stretch i don't trust utah anymore and so uh if luca doesn't if Luca returns before Game Five is expected, I'm I'm just going to take the Mavs and seven. Mavs and seven. My original pick was the Jazz and seven, though, so I'll stick with it until we get concrete status on Luca. But that is not good news uh, for Utah that that Luca is coming back. Also, congratulations to Jalen Brunson, who he was probably going to get paid anyway, but that dude is going to get paid this off season. Uh, last two questions. Jack' Moore asks, Who is the best three point shooter ever in the sense of career three point percentage? And do you think it will ever be beaten? We'll say a minimum of five years to make it more realistic, lol. Um, so I just sort it by 500 career three point attempts because if anyone who is on here and got to 500 in play five years, it's probably in this era and they'll be playing. If they're taking that many threes in over two or three seasons, they'll probably be sticking. So, Steve Kerr. Out of everyone in NBA history who has attempted at least 500 threes for their career, leads in three point percentage at 45.4. Hubert Davis is two at 44.1. Seth Curry, number three, at 43.9. Joe Harris, number, uh, tied for third at 43.9. And then Drazen Petrovic, uh, 43.7, uh, is number five. Desmond Bain of the Grizzlies is number six. So, like, that's where you, he would be filtered out by the say, the minimum of five years. So would, uh, Trayson Petrovich, but we, you know, for obvious reasons, he was, he was a joy to watch. Although I was not old enough to appreciate it in real time. Jason Capono is seven here. Tim Legler is eighth. Steve Novak is ninth. Kyle Clover is 10th. And then we get Steph Curry down at 11th at 42.8%. So you could measure this just in different ways. It's tough to say whether I think it will be broken just because Steve Kerr's not taking the same kind of shots that Steph Curry is. He's not even taking this, he wasn't even taking the same kind of shots that a Seth Curry is at this point. I do ultimately think that we'll get to a point where someone retires with just an absurd volume and he shot over 45% for three. That's just, maybe we won't get there because you look at the Trey Youngs and the Lucas and just the James Harden's and the level of difficulty that are, uh, you know, built into their shots is going to give way to a lower percentage. But I think a Seth Curry, Joe Harris guys who are taking not super easy looks all the time. There's some pull-up stuff. There's a little bit of off-the-dribble work. There's fly, there's guys flying around screens. I could see that Steve Kerr's record will eventually uh, be broken by someone when, when they retire. So I'll go with yes. Would I say that that player is in the league right now? Probably not. But I do think it will be broken. I don't think that is an unbeatable record. Although, holy crap, Steve Kerr, right? Final question comes from Simon. And I really like this one. If the Bucs win again this year, do we have to rethink the Giannis all-time ceiling example? Are we now looking at someone who could likely break into the top 10? If anyone's listened to Adam and I discuss this before in this podcast, you know full well we think Giannis can already break into the top 10. And it begs itself to an interest. So to answer Simon's question, if he wins in back-to-back years, especially when there's a team like the Suns that exists with the Warriors kind of peaking and so much just... Talent at the top of the West, when you look at Miami and Boston specifically, and then maybe the hypothetical ceilings of Brooklyn and Philly, hell yeah. Like it just changes his all time ceiling, where maybe that discussion about him finishing as one of the 10 best players of all time becomes more mainstream. But it, le- it lends itself to a larger question of how many potentially top 10 all time players are in the league right now? And I'm not trying to be incendiary with this take. Between Steph, KD, Giannis, and LeBron. Like that's, I would say four legitimate candidates. And are there people that think, oh, Luca or Jokic is going to belong in that discussion or, uh, or a Zion or a, or a, at this point, Cade Cunningham. So those were getting too far ahead, but it feels like right now, and this is without Giannis winning that second title, Kevin Durant, Giannis, Steph, and we know LeBron is already there. Like those are four real top 10 candidates that are just active. Uh, is there a recency bias caked in there? Maybe. But where would Giannis rank among those three, uh, four all time? To- you could really say three because LeBron will be in front of him. Would he have a better case for the top 10 than Steph or KD? I don't think so yet, but those three would be really neck and neck if Giannis is picking up title number two. And look, the emotional, sentimental value that will be given to his titles if they come in Milwaukee – I totally get it. Steph shouldn't be any different because he's, he's been a warrior's lifer as well, but you know, uh, playing on the warriors is to play in more of a a glamor market, I guess, technically. Uh, And there was, it's just, Giannis is different. Like there's narrative and anecdotes that shape it a lot. There were people that were waiting for his regency for years because they were convinced that he was going to leave or, or ask for a trade. So, yes, I do think it would have to, it would definitely reframe the discussion, but Simon, I think we're already there to where those are the four players you look at right now, currently in the league, and think that they have a chance to be, um, when all said and done, and we fast forward to the NBA's 100th anniversary, uh, rather than 75th, those are four players that could be in the the top 10 uh, all-time list. This was fun. Uh, I hope you did not tire of me doing this solo. This might be something I throw in as a third podcast every week because I'm trying to provide more content for everyone, but I'm not sure if I have the bandwidth for it. Do you all even have the bandwidth to listen to three Hardwood Knox episodes a week? Anyway, I rambled here for like 80 minutes, which is way more than I wanted to. Let me just close by saying, remember to rate, review and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't done those things and have made it this far, please do those things. If you've already done all those things, make sure you're following all our other accounts, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter. Um, They are in the description. Join our Discord channel. Let's have some fun, people. Uh, And also remember to subscribe to our YouTube. Last but certainly not least, shout out to the one, the only, currently on a playoff roster, Lockdown defender, should have won defensive player of the year. We don't care what the metrics say or the eye test says. It's just about our gut feeling. with Latina.